Here, invader. Eat. The only reason I can see for our fighting is that your uniform is a different color than mine. Do you understand my language? I suppose not. Anyway, I repeat. There's no longer any reason for us to fight. There are no longer any armies. Only rags of various colors that were once uniforms. Like the two sets of rags we wear. We're going to go for a joyride. You've just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter Death's waiting room, if you dare. And welcome to Strange Highways. I am Paul. And I'm Kevin. And uh, welcome to the Bronson cast, because uh, that's what we're going to call our podcast from now on. Yeah. And just yeah. nothing but Bronson from here on out. I'd be okay with that, actually. <laughs> well, there's a lot of Bronson I've not experienced, so yeah, I'd be okay with that, too. Yeah, definitely. You need to get to that 10 to midnight, man. I'm just going to keep uh, bringing it up every week until you watch it. <laughs> and, and well, after the majesty of telephone, I don't know if it could possibly compare. So, uh, yeah, welcome. Welcome to season three. Uh, the, the, Bronson, well, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, we are welcomed by a special guest. Uh, welcome, sir, Mr. El Goro. Oh, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Yes, it is once again I, El Goro, showing up on a rare episode that doesn't feature Burgess Meredith. But since it was Charles Bronson, I figured I'd make an exception. And now, for the benefit of the listeners, some people might be thinking, because I'm showing up so frequently, that I may be a third cast member on the prestigious Strange Highways. But let me assure you, that is not the case. No, much like a robot Hyperion riding a super train with Johnny Midnight straight into a Hawaiian eye, I am merely a running gag. Oh my god, man. That <laughs> if you're playing the drinking game of Strange Highways, that that might ruin your night right there. <laughs> I whenever possible I make people chug. <laughs> yeah. That, man, that... I'm I'm still hunting down that Hawaiian eye. I'm counting down. Got about two and a half months till I go to Hawaii. I'm going into every video store I can <laughs> until I can find it. I've been keeping an eye out. I've been trolling the less savory parts of the internet. And while I may have discovered new and exciting ways to scar my brain, I have yet to find Hawaiian Eye for you. You're going to yeah, find like, a, like the vault of that series was taken away because of the lava flows recently. You're going to be like weeks <laughs> oh, away no. and it's like the Don't masters were destroyed. It. Yeah. Well, well that's, we're going, that's why the volcano blew up. They ran out of episodes of Hawaiian Eye to <laughs> sacrifice to appease the volcano god. <laughs> <laughs> that's how good the show is. Yeah, um, much, uh, I, much sympathies to people who live in Hawaii. That's terrible that that's happening <laughs> to you, but you do live on a volcano. Yes. Uh, uh, thankfully, we're going to Maui, so our uh, our white person honeymoon to a tropical <laughs> island uh, will not be ruined. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it's it. We're going to Maui, so we shouldn't be affected by it unless uh, Maui starts erupting, which I don't think there's an active volcano on that island. I, I like just assuming that when they say Hawaii, like I just think all the islands are jammed together, like Pangea. I don't, I don't understand. Uh, Whatever, it's fine. It's it, all. You can't imagine how many texts I got when all this started going down. Like, oh man, did you see? I hope your uh, trip's gonna be okay. I'm like, it's not even the same island. <laughs> not even the same. <laughs> Oh, so yeah, uh, we, uh, we were away from twilight zone for a bit, uh, and now we're back, uh, season three, we, we've been excited for this, but we've also just realized that we've been tearing through it. So we took some, some detours and now we're back with uh, season three and proper, uh, this is season three, episode one, two, I, I, my brain can't handle three, one, two that I don't like that, um, air date, September 15th, 1961, uh, number one film, The Parent Trap. Number one song, Michael, Row Your Boat Ashore by the Highwaymen. Um, I didn't realize that charted, but whatever. Um, so uh, for some history around this date, and I was talking to Kevin before we started recording about words that trip you up. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, the WWF was founded on 9-11-61. The World Wildlife Fund. That's that's what oh. was started. Yeah. So that Pando with well, the folding chair. The wrestling league started as WWWF, right? Oh. Yeah, I was just about to throw out a correction, yeah. but then boom, you you swerved us on that. Yeah, I was trying. So that was founded uh, to, on, on the 11th, so four days for this. And then on the actual date, here's the words that I'm going to mess up. Um, Operation Nougat, that's not the word I mess up. Um, two weeks after the Soviet Union resumed nuclear testing. I always want to do the, the, the W, you know, nuclear. I don't know why I always want to say that the wrong way. Um, the United States exploded a nuclear bomb for the first time since October 30th, 58. While the Soviets tests were atmospheric, the American tests were conducted underground at the Nevada test site. And I'm going to guess within proximity of the set where this was shot at. So <laughs> yeah, it's totally uh, possible. So yeah. yeah, like I just, it just considering that what we're about to talk about, this is like oddly um, fitting for, uh, for day and date. Well, did you yeah. see that uh, that other piece of Cold War nuclear news to rise out of the state? <laughs> um, what was that? Uh, well, this is what I have. Citing U.S. Congressman Chet Hollifield, which is a adventurer's name if there ever was one, as their uh, California as their source, Miami News columnist Robert S. Allen and Paul Scott broke the frightening story that the Soviet Union planned to nuke the moon, firing nuclear-tipped rockets at Earth's satellite in 1961 and 1962. The Soviets would use the explosions on the lunar surface for scientific purposes with the goal of landing a Soviet cosmonaut on on the moon by 1965 that that's, that's that sounds like a that, bond uh villain plan right <laughs> <laughs> and oh. so at one point either the soviets had or we suspected they had a plan to nuke the moon <laughs> <laughs> oh that's crazy i just appreciate that the u.s <laughs> operation was they called carried that out right after uh operation telephone yeah so <laughs> yeah <laughs> But we called ours. We called ours Operation Nougat. Like that, we stuck ours deep underground inside, full of caramel and other things. I don't know why. It, it was a weird time, right? <laughs> Let's be honest. But that's yeah. Like we're just gonna we're gonna just blow up the moon. Why for science? I guess I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just see what happens. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. We don't need tides. It's fine. All right. Yeah. So and did the, you catch? Did you catch the famous birth from this date? No, you were schooling me here. No, I was excited for the WWF and some nougat. 
Oh, Dan Marino was born that this day. Oh, oh look at that. Well, Laces out. Friend Laces of Ace Ventura. Yeah, yeah. He ate all his gum. Like, I know that. <laughs> nice. So we'll jump into cast and crew here for this episode. Uh, not really too much to talk about because we've talked about most people involved in this. Uh, this episode was directed by Montgomery Pittman, who we recently discussed on the Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up episode. And uh, I, I think we mentioned it at the time. He was the only director to write and direct his own work for The Twilight Zone, which he did on this episode and two other future episodes we'll talk about. Um, unfortunately, he died of cancer in 1962, so he didn't really get to go much further than the couple episodes he worked on. Uh, I think the five episodes he did for The Twilight Zone. Um but yeah, if you want to hear our discussion on Montgomery Pittman, definitely go back and check out uh, Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? So I, I I don't know why I didn't notice this when we talked about it at the time, but I found like there's some horrible things about what happened with his uh, sudden passing, which we didn't talk about. I want to share now because that's what I do. <clears throat> um, he At 45, he ended up getting a tumor the size on his neck that grew to a grapefruit size. And he had to have it excised, and he and he had a gaping hole which he covered up with a handkerchief, right? So cool. that that immediately like that like they didn't catch all the cancer. He died quickly thereafter. Um, and here's another note I was reading here that Will Hutchins, a friend of Pittman, um, that was working on Sugarfoot, the Western series, a while ago, uh, they asked him to be a pallbearer at uh, at his funeral. And he said no, because as a teenager, Hutchinson had dropped the casket of a relative and feared he might do it again. Oh, no. <laughs> you imagine carrying that phobia with you for the rest of your life? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that's an oddly specific thing. Yeah, and I just like it had nothing to do with this episode. And I read that. I'm like, that's a weird thing to put in Wikipedia. So I wanted to share that with everybody. Anytime I was expecting. You, well, anytime you go to help somebody move, they're like, well, don't let him lift it up. You know what happened last time? <laughs> <laughs> I was expecting you to say something about helicopters or something like <laughs> No, that's that's next week. We'll uh, we'll we'll get there when we get there. So, um, te- yeah. I'm teasing the next it's episode. Like, yeah. I can't go to your funeral if there's going to be helicopters. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, that's uh, some gruesome news that I, I learned about this person that we talked about previously. So, there you go. Yep, cool. And then uh, this episode was written, like I said, uh, by Montgomery Pittman as well. Um, and we'll talk about him a few more times. And then we got, for the cast, a uh, huge cast in this episode. Uh, first off, we have Elizabeth Montgomery as the woman. Um, and and we've, we've skirted all around her throughout the series, going through the Bewitch cast. And uh, we've finally gotten to Samantha, because that's what she's most well-known for. Um, and uh, funny enough, we've, we've covered Dick York and Agnes Moorhead, who was in kind of a similar role back yeah. in the invaders episode. Um, there's some, there's some strange parallels between the two episodes, which I thought was cool. Um, and then it, I always see, have either of you guys seen her in legend of Lizzie Borden? I think it was a TV movie from the seventies. I think I caught a bit of it, but I don't think I've ever watched the entire thing. Um, yeah. I, I always see this thing pop up and uh, I've never gotten around to watch it, but I, I think this might be the uh, driving force to get me to finally check it out because it, it looks interesting. And after I forgot how much I love Elizabeth Montgomery <laughs> watching this episode uh, made me really excited to check it out. So, well, yeah. And I, well, I have to say that um, 
it's it's it was interesting watching this because I'd seen this episode before, but never made the Elizabeth Montgomery connection. I think part of it was that uh, she didn't have her iconic blonde hair in this in this episode. She was rocking a much darker hairstyle. Yeah, and she's covered in dirt. So that's it. <laughs> Um, and I, well, I was reading about that Lizzie Borden series. It turns out that like after she passed away, someone pieced together that she was actually a distant relative of Lizzie Borden. She didn't know it. So that's kind of bizarre that she ended up playing uh-huh. a role that she was related to. Oh, you just call her Lizzie Montgomery now. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, next up and lastly, we have <laughs> the Charles Bronson who plays the man. And, uh, yeah, we, we spent a long time last week talking about Charles Bronson, but, uh, El Goro, uh, I just want to get your, uh, your thoughts on Charles Bronson and maybe some of your favorite movies on the man. Well, as you could probably tell by virtue of the fact that I said, yes, I want to be on this episode. I'm a huge, (laughs) I'm a huge Charles Bronson fan. I have been since I watched uh, dirty dozen and, uh, um, pardon me, the magnificent seven as a double feature. And he was always one of those actors that growing up, I knew of him, you know, he had entered into that iconic status where people were doing impressions. He was just one of those names that came up, but there was something about seeing him in particularly uh, dirty dozen where it was just this guy and then he had like a shirtless scene. It's like, Jesus Christ, that guy is carved from rock, which is, you don't necessarily see in a whole hell of a lot of old movies. And then once I figured out that, wait a minute, that's Charles Bronson. I just dove right in. I've no, I've come nowhere close to seeing his entire filmography, but it is a goal of mine that before I die, I will see every Charles Bronson movie ever, which means eventually I had to get around to watching Telephon. So (laughs) God help yeah, me. No, it's it's fun. Good. I, I think it's, you'll, it's it, not bad. It you'll just enjoy is. most of it. Yeah. <laughs> it as far as well, as far as favorite stuff, uh, like I said, Dirty Dozen and um, Magnificent Seven are definitely top tier Bronson, as far as I'm concerned. The Tippy Tippy Top, and actually, uh, curiously enough, my favorite Western of all time is uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, in which he is just so perfect in that. And uh, the various horror offerings he did. And curiously enough, looking at the date of when this came out, um, one of his other films that I actually am quite a fan of came out in 1961. It was the Vincent Price flick, Master of the World. Hmm. Never seen that one. I believe it's on the third volume of the Scream Factory uh, Vincent Price sets they did. But it's, it's, it's a trip, man. It's based off a Jules Verne novel, and Vincent Price is just so over-the-top as a villain. And it's, Bronson plays a very prominent lead. It's, it's good stuff. Vincent Price overacting? No. <laughs> yeah. uh, what, what about the sleazier stuff, like the Death Wish series and like Mechanic and all that kind of stuff? Oh yeah, total, definitely a fan of that that sort of thing. Though, admittedly, the Death Wish series does kind of descend into self-parody at a certain point, no. but it's still part, fun. It's fun. Part for three is amazing, is. though. Oh, it's incredible. <laughs> and then I didn't bring it up last week either. Did you see that ridiculous uh, movie coming out called Death Kiss? <laughs> I didn't see the I didn't see the trailers, but I saw the stills and whoever they got doubling uh, Bronson that just looks amazing. Yeah. I have to say, uh, what I don't know though is how well he can pull off the the voice because as iconic as I as Bronson looks and looked throughout his entire life. It's his voice that really is the selling point. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, it, this was like in response to um, Eli Roth's Death Wish remake that this director, Rene Perez, found this dude, Robert Bronzy, who looks just like. Wait, what's his last name? <laughs> like uh, Bronzy. Hmm. 
Hmm, yeah, close. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird. Like it, he looks just like him. It, it, it like an older. He doesn't look like young Bronson, but like an older Bronson. Um, very strange stuff, though. I don't think I've ever seen a movie try and pull off what this is trying to pull off. Uh, it doesn't necessarily look good, but I'm I'm definitely going to watch it. <laughs> yeah. uh, we were entering into the golden age of Bronson exploitation, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get the like the whole Bruce L.I. Uh, situation going on. Yeah, a whole slew of Bronson movies without him. Hi, I'm Charles Brownson, and uh... <laughs> <laughs> I'm Charles Bronze son. Like I can yeah, see there that. You go. <laughs> and uh, speaking of favorite Bronson movies, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention one of my all-time favorites. It was the 1975 Walter Hill joint, Hard Times. Have you guys seen that? Uh, the prison one? No, it's where uh, Bronson's playing a bare-knuckle boxer in the Depression, and James Coburn is his fast-talking um, kind of grifter manager. Oh, no, I haven't seen that. I always thought that was a prison film. No, I think huh. that's Harsh Times. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I know he was in a prison film that I've seen some of, but I always thought that was that one. Huh. Oh, yeah. yeah, but Hard Times is incredible. If you're if you're a fan of Walter Hill from his later stuff with like the Warriors, yeah. you need to go back and watch Hard Times because um, it, it's just one of those kind of forgotten 70s films that when I first saw it, I fell in love with it. And uh, yeah, really dig it. Nice. I'll have to check it out. Sure. So, so like I said, huge cast in this one. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, just those two. So, um, yeah, I, I guess we're good to start talking about this episode then. So let's let uh, Serling take it away. This is a jungle, a monument built by nature honoring disuse, commemorating a few years of nature being left to its own devices. But it's another kind of jungle, the kind that comes in the aftermath of man's battles against himself. Hardly an important battle, not a Gettysburg or a Marne or an Iwo Jima. More like one insignificant corner patch in the crazy quilt of combat. But it was enough to end the existence of this little city. It's been five years since a human being walked these streets. This is the first day of the sixth year, as man used to measure time. The time, perhaps a hundred years from now, or sooner. Or perhaps it's already happened two million years ago. The place, the signposts are in English, so that we may read them more easily. But the place is the Twilight Zone. I, I just got to mention, first off, though, we got a new intro with season three. I don't know if you guys noticed that. Like, yeah, the, the spinning, uh, I'm going to hypnotize you thing. Yeah, yeah, we finally got the Vortex, which mm -hmm. we've had as our logo since we started. <laughs> yeah. The only thing I'm not uh, necessarily down with is the new font on the title card. No, I like that it breaks up and like explodes, but it's a really boring font it for is. this season. Yeah, it feels it feels like I mean, because I don't know, like I feel like it's like offering like auto care or something. It doesn't it doesn't quite match up with everything. <laughs> like, oh, well, considering know. the history with the Twilight Zone and cars, we should probably not take your car there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, new intro. Um, <clears throat> really long Sterling intro for this, and I'm getting choked up. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, what is wrong it's with you? I'm, I'm dying right now, and that's it. I'm done. We talked about Bronson. That's it. Uh, so yeah, uh, we got a long intro because honestly, there's not a lot of dialogue in this episode uh, to a benefit because I really I liked the the whole intro as he's talking because we we meet uh, the woman as she's walking into this uh, uh, like 
urban area that's starting to uh, fall away to nature. And there's some really cool shots of street posts covered in like an ivy. And like you just see like nature coming to take the city street back. And they do a great job of kind of establishing her character, or at least her mindset of the character. There was one scene that I thought was interesting where she's going past a just dilapidated truck and there's a skeletal hand just kind of hanging out of it. And she, she walks up next to it, kind of glances at it and just kind of almost shrugs and moves on. So we get the sense that this is a woman who is very acquainted with death. Yeah, there, there's a lot of really subtle stuff like that and character moments that I absolutely loved in this episode. Um, and I, I got to give credit to Serling. You know, we talk about his uh, overly verbose <laughs> intro sometimes and uh, being worried about it. He sets this uh, setting so well for this episode that the mood is established immediately for it. And um, for an episode with very little dialogue, I felt like his intro was perfect for this. Yeah. And then we also got another thing that's happening this season. Did, did you guys see that the actual title showed up on the screen with like some producing and writing and directing credits? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Was, I had noticed that I, I didn't make the connection that that was new, but uh, it felt new. Yeah, yeah. They used to do it at the end. If I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. um, it would pop up, but yeah, now we're getting it at the beginning. Uh, which I feel like being such a writer friendly show that they probably should have been doing that since the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, you kind of want to give credit where credit's due, right? So it was just, yeah. it, it was, it's not, it's not bad. It's just, it, it feels like it almost feels like something that was added after the fact. Like it feels something like modern to it, considering the way we'd see things, but whatever, that's neither here nor there. It was just a stylistic change. I kind of dug mm -hmm. it. So um, the, the plot of this is kind of, it's it's very minimum because it's much more atmospheric and character. So I don't know how fast we want to tear through it, but uh, we we meet woman, which Elgora also promised I'm not going to mess up the characters' names this time around, like I did for uh, <laughs> the, the previous time you were on. I promise that's not going to happen. Mr. Wo so this woe man, <laughs> woe man, um. yeah, um, yeah. She she's wandering around and she ends up um, finding a restaurant. Why well, no, she pass? Doesn't she pass by the display with uh, the dresses on it first? And she stops yeah, and, and she looks at clocks the, it. Yeah. She looks at the looks at the wedding dress and then walks into the restaurant and starts trying and she goes back to the employee entrance and starts digging around trying to find food. Um Yeah, and and the food she finds looks disgusting. <laughs> uh, I'm just gonna get out ahead of this thing. Uh, she finds a, a can of chicken wings, which I didn't even know you could can chicken wings. I was not aware of that either, but no. uh it was the sixties, I guess. Yeah, so as she's opening that can, uh, the man enters, and again, uh, no name for the uh, for Bronson's character. So I, I forgive me if I start referring to them as the actor and actress's names. <laughs> well, um, is there is there anything more appropriate than simply referring to Bronson as the man? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you got the man, and then you got Lizzie Borden. So um, yeah, he enters. They end up uh, fighting. They're fighting over the. Uh, the can of chicken well, wings. She whips. I love that she starts him. hitting him with yeah. the with the frying pan. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, she merely whips a butcher knife at him and then goes after him with a frying pan. So this isn't a matter of like him being aggressive. Like she comes out like knives out literally at him, and it was very very sudden and fast. Yeah, I yeah. mean, and she attacks him before he even does anything. He just shows up in the doorway, and then even when he uh, slaps her down with his own frying pan-sized hand, <laughs> you, you get this moment where he just looks at it, and you could tell right from the jump that this is a man that does not want to resort to violence. 
Yeah. Well, they kind of establish uh, because this can go one of two ways. You know, we can go completely animalistic, seeing as there's no um, uh, there's no society left anymore. So they can do whatever they want. You know, so you could see this going kind of the animalistic direction where uh, they've just turned into scavengers and they're just going to fight for food. You know, they're just going to do what they do to survive. But then you get the humanity kind of creeping in at that moment where you realize that Bronson um, against type is going to have a sympathetic side. Well, yeah, <laughs> like he, 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 he uh, sees what happens, grabs the food, starts and I, something, I don't know. It's, it's appropriately right or appropriately wrong. That he's eating these like, like chicken legs out of a can. And, ugh. <laughs> And he goes out. He goes outside for a second and starts looking at the different like newspapers and magazines that are around. And then also um, on the nose, a white dove flies away uh, behind him. But like the newspapers and uh, the the magazine are all pointing towards this conflict that was either it was ongoing at the time of publishing, but everything's now just wrecked and covered in dust. And you just kind of see him just existing with this uh, with this bucket of chicken and uh, just looking at all like you know history and past like the past five years. And it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, there's also the little bit with the calendar that has oh, yeah. the bikini model on it. So he keeps kind of looking at that and looking at uh, uh, the woman on the floor and everything. And uh, there's there's a few moments with like a magazine when he goes outside, he sees the dress in the window. He's flipping through newspapers and everything. And he picks up another magazine that has a woman on the cover. But I, I like that that magazine has a woman with a gas mask on the cover of it. Yeah, they do a great job of world building there, showing yeah. that, suggesting that warfare has been such a part of this culture that it's been integrated into the fashion, that they're advertising it like they would a, a new dress or a new hat in a woman's magazine. Yeah, and they don't really give a time frame of when this is. Yeah, um, There's a scene later on that they suggest that this is further in the future than you would expect it to be. Um, I don't know if if you guys took it the same way I did with the gunshots, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll get to it. Um, but they do a good job just kind of setting this world and it doesn't really matter what time period this is. It's just like timeless, like dystopian society, like society and everything. So um, I, I really enjoy that. The story was pretty much only told through headlines and through, um, posters on the wall and movie marquees and that kind of stuff yeah, um, well, rather than through dialogue. Cause you could easily have these characters explaining every single thing that went on, you know? Yeah. But you have to think that the audience of the time, I mean, this being deep into the cold war, they wouldn't have needed that. They just, yeah, yeah. the, the iconography was there enough. And then even later we get Elizabeth Montgomery delivering her one line of the show, suggesting her own uh, Russian origins. But it was just enough to kind of uh, play off of everybody's fear of, of this conflict between these two great powers. And by removing all of that and relying simply upon the iconography with very little words uh, throughout it, I mean, it really does sort of distill it down to the archetypical. It's, it distills it down to its most primal essence because no matter where you are in, in the history of mankind, really warfare just kind of boils down between these two belligerents. And ultimately, the message of this particular episode is equally applicable across any kind of uh, theater of war. 
Yeah, which Bronson's uh, few lines that he has in this episode really hit upon those points that you just made. So he after he sees a magazine with a woman on the cover and everything, he goes back into the restaurant and he's trying to wake her up and everything and uh, empties her holster. And she's got like a picture and a bunch of bobby pins in there. No gun or anything. Uh, so he grabs a disgusting bucket of water uh, and dumps you it on disgusting. his face. Yeah, because he, he looks at this bucket of water and pulls out a hair or something and whips it off yeah. to the side and dumps it on her. And I'm like, ugh. Like, and, and I'll, I'll, I want to back up a little bit. Seeing Bronson eat that chicken out of that can, I want to believe that's how Bronson ate all his meals. I just want to throw that out there. <laughs> just that, out like, of the can? Just no matter what, <laughs> just him grabbing and just like, he he was like eager eating all of that, right? Like, just very like, I haven't had a meal in a week or a it month. Was, or- it was on par with the kids eating in Jurassic Park, how disgusted <laughs> I felt while watching it. <laughs> but yeah, he pours this disgusting water on her. She wakes up. And then he uh, sees that he has half that can of chicken left and he you know, moves it over with his boot. And that's where you hear part of the speech I played at the beginning about basically, you know, saying that the only reason we're being aggressive towards each other is because of the colors of what we wear. And that I don't know if you've noticed, but like that's all done now. And then he actually gives another part of the speech where he yells through the rafters and echoes that may be known that that peace is declared in the land. And it's very effective basically being like, I'm giving up on war and I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm done with it. And I thought that was awesome. Yeah. And I, I love the line he has about how there's no more boundaries. There's no more government. So there's really no reason to fight. There's no one to fight for anymore. So we just need to survive and get on with our own lives, yep. which is a, it's great. It's, it's on the nose and it explains everything, but it's, it's a, it's a sentiment that I have a hard time not getting behind, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know how you couldn't be behind the message in this episode. Oh, definitely. Though I have to admit of getting a slight chuckle out of his line about them having different colored clothing. What with this being in black and white, it reminded me, it reminded me of the, uh, the gag line in Tim Burton's Ed Wood, where there was the colorblind cinematographer and says, I can't tell the difference between them, but I like the dark gray one. <laughs> and it's, 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 yeah. it's also not explained that you don't know if Charles Bronson didn't kill every other person in the world at this time. He's just saying, he's I wouldn't put it past him. you don't know if he was the reason why that happened. We never, get there but i kind of believe it yeah yeah so he he finally uh, he comes on to her and says like uh you're very pretty and everything and he's he decides that he can't get across his intentions with her um that he's trying to be peaceful and everything because she doesn't speak english so he just walks out and leaves like "Eh, it's a hopeless cause yeah, and he just wanders across the street to the barbershop, which uh, I, the one thing you learn about warfare is that none of the knobs ever make it. All of them break off. And he goes yeah. to and grabs every knob. And like, I just want to point like most of this, this, this episode felt like the video game fallout. Like you're like, well, I guess I can't open that one. What's the next one? I guess I can't open that one. Oh, a bobby pin. I'll use this for later. The, the whole thing felt like that. So he eventually finds some uh, the, uh, lather and goes to shave and he uses more disgusting water, whatever. Um, and he's shaving and she wanders in and there's a wonderful, wonderful shot of her being reflected in the mirror. Um, that's like over his shoulder while she's entering the barbershop while he's shaving. There's some really wonderful just shots in this because since there's not dialogue, you got to show me something. There's some beautiful placements throughout the entire episode. Yeah. And this whole scene, like really nothing is going on, but 
there's so much being told between the two characters and just the way they're interacting with each other in this and just the way as like he tosses her a rag and some soap and stuff and she starts cleaning herself, but she will never take her eyes off of Bronson the entire time they're down there. And it really gets across the fact that she cannot trust anyone during this time. You know, it's 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 great nonverbal acting going on in this episode. Yeah, and you really got to give credit to Montgomery Pittman for the way that this entire episode is constructed, staged, and just kind of plays out. Because as you mentioned, there is no real dialogue leading it forward. Bronson gives a couple speeches, but for the most part, it is not. It's non. It's all nonverbal, and to make that still interesting and also visually engaging in what otherwise could be a rather sort of staid or boring storyline that takes some real uh, real uh, talent on the behalf of the director and the cinematographer. And the same goes towards Elizabeth Montgomery and Charles Bronson, particularly Bronson, who, as much as I love him, I will readily admit his uh, limited range as an actor, (laughs) though it is hilarious whenever he decides to step out of his range. But at no point in this episode, even when he's he's at the height of his speech making, does it ever come out as false. He legitimately just feels like a man who is done with this, that he is tired and he doesn't want to do this anymore. Well, like he even puts the straight razor to his neck as she's walking in and he just keeps shaving his neck and she has that knife in her belt and she has to pull that out to set it down whenever he throws her the soap. So like he is showing her that he has a blade to his neck that she could rush over and take advantage of, but he just doesn't want to do that. And it's very, it's very interesting how vulnerable he makes himself out to be in the middle of all of it while she keeps grabbing like you know anything she can use to defend herself. And when he throws the towel at her, she freaks out for a second and then realizes it's just a towel. You know, like there's these moments that it's like, I, it's 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 a little comedic, but she's almost like she's almost like that stray animal that has been just out and almost feral. And she sees somebody, but she she wants to have that connection, but is just too terrified to let the guard down. And she does a really, really good job of getting that across. Yeah. And uh, I just want to say how much I love the fact that they're showing him shaving in a post-apocalyptic story. Because there's so many times where you're watching like something like The Walking Dead and that. And you're like, how does everyone have a perfect haircut and shave <laughs> constantly? <laughs> right. I mean, so, it, it's it also often a post-apocalyptic. Well, all too often it seems makes it seem like, oh, they have a stubble that shows that they haven't had access to shave. No, you only have a stubble for a day or two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was great. I I just thought it was funny in like a twenty minute Twilight Zone story that they were like, see, you can take care of yourself. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, just trying to imagine Charles Bronson with a beard and wondering if ever seen I've ever seen that in a movie. It would come in pencil thin. It, probably uh, would. it would just be like a chin strap connecting to his mustache. That's just how it grows in naturally. <laughs> I like it. Um, and so, and, and, and um, so like after that, he wanders out and goes towards the, the theater. Um, and as he's walking along there, there's the whole bit, the ticket booth where he grabs the money and just like throws it because it, it also just shows that like this has no value now and she's fallen behind him. And then within, within moments of each other, they both notice that, uh, there are two uh, dead bodies that each have a rifle with them. So they both grab a rifle and they aim it at each other. And that's your commercial break is that um, both of them are threatening each other. 
And then you come back from the break, and basically he's the first one to be like, nah, I'm good, and just shoulders the rifle to show her that he's not going to be aggressive again. Yeah, they, they just walk away, and she starts following him. Um, so at this point, they end up back at the dress window um, from the beginning of the episode, and she has her one line in the episode, and she says, procrastinate which is Russian for uh, beautiful or pretty. Uh, I couldn't find like a, a great translation of it, but pretty much means that. Um, so he goes up and he takes a dress off the mannequin and tosses it to her and just tells her to put it on. He, and he kinda, he's kind of brutal to that mannequin too, by the way. He just goes up and just just tears it apart and grabs like he Yeah, just, doesn't he know that mannequin was a person one time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just you know, this like considering that we just saw the way he terrified his co star in telephone last week, like I just like just him walking up to that female <laughs> mannequin and knocking it in two and tearing the dress off of it just makes me feel a little weird. And it's fine, but it's just like I carry that into this episode. That's not his fault. But yeah, he just goes and hands it to I, her. Yeah, I also love that uh, we've had Bronson switch uh, nationalities between these two episodes where uh, uh, he played a Russian last week in the movie we covered, and now he's American. So, And I would argue that Elizabeth Montgomery's one word was more Russian than any of the accents he tried pulling off in telephone. Which is hilarious because she doesn't even try to say Prokrasny in a Russian accent. I mean, she sounds like an American saying the word. It's yeah, like, it sounds uh, like me saying the word. <laughs> well, it's it's kind of it's kind of like you want you wanted the director to say, "All right, all right, Elizabeth, this is your one line. Can you maybe put a little bit of Slav on it? Just a little." Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I just thought it was funny that even even that though was still better than, than Bronson's <laughs> accent in Telephone. <laughs> you think he'd be like, you know, I know Russian. I I did this Twilight Zone episode years ago. I got this, but whatever. Maybe that yeah. maybe her reading of it is what made him believe that's what Russian sounded like. Maybe that's what happened. Um, but anyway, so she so, gets the dress. Yeah, yeah, she goes in to put the dress on, and she ends up going into a recruiting office. Uh, for I, I guess the army, just the military in general. Um, and as she's about to put the dress on, she starts looking around. She sees all the posters and stuff that have very like quote unquote patriotic posters and everything of like uh, soldiers rounding up enemies and everything. And she decides she grabs her gun and goes outside and takes two shots at Bronson and misses both of them. And that's where we get that kind of cues you in that it's a little bit further into the future because it's this terrible animation of almost like lasers coming out of the gun. Yeah, I think I think Al Gore sound effects were better than the sound effects that were in the episode. But <laughs> yeah, they, they had the effect yeah, um, of causing. So <laughs> Sorry, what's, go ahead. what's better special effects? Uh, mirror image or this one, Paul? Uh, this one, because mirror image was terrible. <laughs> because in this one, regardless of the sound and the shot, the cart was still on fire, and you had Bronson almost do a back roll. I don't know. That was a weird effect of missing the shot. Um, and then they still showed the cart smoking after. So I will still give this one. I don't think it was needed, but they, they wanted to imply that it was the future. Uh, but I'll still give credit to this one because it wasn't. it was fast. And it was over with, and the end of Mirror Image was just terrible. And I will stand by that throughout this entire series. (laughs) I thought I had you. No. (laughs) Uh, I will still say the dinosaur was better, and the Flight of Odyssey, or was it the the Odyssey of Flight 33, than this. But there you go. There's your hierarchy. Yeah. So after she misses the shot, Bronson ends up just, he just decides he's going to leave. He just walks away. 
So we cut to her back in the uh, recruiting uh, office and she's sitting there alone. There's a thunderstorm. And this one, I had seen this episode a long time ago because I always remembered her in the uh, the uniform that she's wearing, curling up next to the rifle. And as soon as we got to the shot, I remembered um, it, it finally brought me back to the first time I watch it because I love with the thunderstorm coming through the window and everything and her covering herself up with the blanket and just uh, curling up with her rifle. It's a it's a very memorable shot in this episode. Yeah, and such striking imagery, especially for the 1960s, where the concept of women in the armed forces was uh, it was it was foreign to many people. I don't remember when they decided to allow more women into the active armed forces. I don't know if they'd done that by the time the 60s rolled around. Certainly by the 80s, because that's when my mom joined up. But uh, it yeah. still would have been a um, a strange image for the majority of Americans out there, or at least further reinforcing the Russian origins of her, because the Russians had no problem letting women serve <laughs> in the military. There was another warm body to be churned up into the mill. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it stuck with me all these years, because I... I knew I had seen this one and it took until this moment that it finally snapped in my head of what was, uh, when I had seen this. So, um, I mean, it, it stands, it had to have been like 20 some years ago that I saw this and still, I remember that one. Like I had just seen it, just that shot. So yeah, then we cut to the next day. Bronson's getting dressed again and, <laughs> dressed. uh, I dressed, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I wrote down suit, ascot, and a no shirt. Uh, really, really going for it, Bronson. <laughs> Look, when if you got Charles Bronson, then you need some production value, and his the best value he brings is a shirtless Charles Bronson. Yeah, but the ascot and a suit jacket, like I, I don't know. <laughs> I liked I liked that he kind of was like tying up the, the the ascot and he had the suit jacket. Then the one sleeve cuff was like poking out, so he ripped it off. And he looked at it for a second. He's like, you know what? Pocket square. It just puts it into his coat. It was it was well, like it and was really great. what it feels what it feels like is somebody who has seen fancy uh, fancy clothes and seen people wearing fancy clothes, but has never worn them himself. Yeah, so it, he's he's putting on a costume. It kind of parallels the way Elizabeth Montgomery is looking at the dress because when she first sees that dress, it's the same thing where she sees it and she kind of looks at it uh, sheepishly like she's not supposed to wear it and then looks down at her uniform and walks away almost dejected from it. So it's 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 a nice little parallel saying like these people have never really seen nice clothes or gotten a chance to wear them. Yeah. And uh, just kind of mimicking what they think. I want to believe be that, that Bronson was promised that jacket and ascot. Like, you could just have it. When we're done with the episode. You can just have it. And I want to believe that was part of his daily wear, along with the way he eats chicken. <laughs> no, I, he I'm wore this... two set. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Fun part of the trivia. Uh, <laughs> no, that's not true. Yeah. Um, it might be. I don't know. I just so, want to imagine that that's how Bronson showed up to like the fancy uh, Hollywood restaurants and everything like the Brown Derby. <laughs> he's like, no, 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 don't worry. I have two cans of peaches of my own. I have two bottles <laughs> worth of peaches. I don't, I don't need a menu. I know what I'm going to eat. And he has this, this two jars. Can, of, you, yeah. can you bring me my meal in a can? <laughs> yeah. I just need, I just need chicken legs and peaches and I'm good. But he, but he has oh. these two jars of peaches. And so then he is looking over and he sees her. Uh, her head's poking up behind a vehicle and like, and uh, as much as I like his performance here, when he first says go and then he says, 
go away. And he just waves his arm. It's a, I don't know. It caught me as odd. I don't know if you guys caught that. It was just a very like over dramatic go away. And then he says it's a civilian area. And we, you know, basically like you can have your war elsewhere. I'm done with this. And then she turns the corner and she's wearing the dress and she also has her gun on, but she's wearing the dress and showing that she's ready to move on from what she was. Yeah. And I, again, awesome imagery with her, with the combat boots, the dress and the gun on her back. Um, it's something that's very memorable for me for this episode. Um, so when she comes out wearing that dress, we get Bronson returning the Prokrasny back to her. Uh, was that better? Was that closer that time? It's about the um, same. It was about. I the think same. it was. Well, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, I, uh, I, I thought you were reading Bronson's uh, saying of the word, not yours. Yours was better than his. I'll say that. <laughs> All right. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So he tosses her a jar of peach, uh, peaches, and then they start walking away. And they stop and. She finally smiles at him, and rather than her following him, she walks up next to him, and they walk away together, and we get a nice happy ending, and a happy ending that I actually appreciated for once in the show. Yeah, and then um, Serling's uh, narration was like, what you were seeing here was the beginning of a love story, and you buy it. Like It was very, considering some of the dark, dark areas that we've seen episodes go you're right. It was nice to have one kind of just be like, Oh, Oh, they're together now. That's nice. And they have an enemy mind type of thing where they're going to eventually learn each other's language. It'll be good. You know, um, and got- then Bronson's going to give birth. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to a smaller Bronson. Uh, I like <laughs> comes out with the mustache. <laughs> this ain't over. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, I mean, like the first time I watched this, I was expecting a bigger conflict. Like at the end, like something, because, you know, the Twilight Zone is supposed to have that, like, that gut punch. Not always, but sometimes. And I was expecting this because you had this very dystopian and very, like, the world is kind of done ending. And it ends on a hopeful note, which is, um, I mean, it's not necessarily Serling's way of going about things. But the fact that he didn't write this episode shows it. And I, I, and I honestly, the second time watching it, it felt better. Like, so I, I liked it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. a lot of times we're primed for that sort of O. Henry twist, but I think that considering this was one of the message episodes, they didn't need to do that. And it worked out very, very nicely the way they did it. Yeah, and it plays upon your like preconceptions of the show, and expecting that twist, getting that happy ending is kind of a twist upon itself because i i too was expecting something a little bit more uh dramatic between the two of them at the end um and it and getting them just walk away and walking away happy actually kind of caught me off guard so <laughs> um yeah it, it, was, it was something kind of unexpected for this one yeah so um, do you, you guys ready for some trivia about the episode? Some of this you might already know. Um, sure. but, yeah. So, so Bronson yeah. did in fact wear the ascot to set <laughs> and he brought his own chicken and peaches. Like that's what we know. Um, so, uh, the production on this started on May 10th. Um, and any of the shots that were not involved in the actors was shot, whatever. That's great. But there was a casting call for men and women to be used in the calendar and propaganda images. Cause that was all created, uh, for the episode, which I mean, that sounds obvious, but that calendar, you know, you wouldn't think twice about it, but that was created for, for this. And the propaganda images were I like, they were, they were very much harken back to world war two, one purpose. 
and I, I liked I liked the look of them because it got that point across. So I like that that was all created, um, like you know, for the show specifically. Yeah, uh, and we didn't mention the uh, movie poster in the lobby oh, of yeah. the, uh, the the movie theater because that's one of the uh, that's one of the things that kind of clues you into the romance that's happening between them. Is I, I forget the exact name of the movie on the poster, um, but it's it's some sort of romantic uh, drama that's up on the wall, and I. I, I kind of looked it up yeah. to see if it was a real movie because it looked like a legitimate movie poster, and I saw that it was created just for this. So. Yeah, but so, I didn't know everything else was as well. Um, so the set, which you guys may have read about, if not, I'll, I'll let you guys know. There was uh, Hal Roach Studios in Culver City, California, was falling apart due to mismanagement and disuse, and what you saw there was eventually torn down, like less than two years later. So what they ended up using was a set in disarray. And it saved them so much money shooting the episode. Um, very little set decoration was needed to create the illusion of an abandoned city. Um, and you could actually see in some of the shots the bracing that they used for the the false uh, street fronts. But you, know, you didn't think twice about it because it was this whole like war-torn city. Uh, Buck Houghton, who always has the best quotes about all this... Um, it had weeds in the street. The theater marquee had letters hanging sideways, and we didn't have to hardly do anything to it. At MGM, we'd have to put down our own weeds and tear up out our own windows. So basically, they're like, all right, put a bunch of garbage around, leave it, and then they shot the episode. And, <laughs> and it's like, you look at that, and it's like, you make, it makes you wonder how much they really had to do uh, versus what they found. And the no yeah, one, it looks great. Oh, it was amazing because like we've we've seen, especially in like the later half of season two, when the budget got really tight. Like how, like I don't know about you, but this felt refreshing to actually have an exterior like shot. Yeah. Like this was, uh, it was it was a feast for the eyes because it felt much bigger, much like season one felt. And then to find out that this was not that much more expensive than even the more average episodes of season two. That that's awesome that they were able to use basically this this whole area that was gonna get plowed over anyway uh, to shoot their their show. Yeah. yeah, especially since the setup of this it would have lent itself to kind of a closed set sort of setup because it's just two people. But yeah, uh, and by it's being such to... a small segment of the city too, because mm, it's, it's basically only two storefronts, so they could have done it. But yeah, it 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 looks incredible. Yeah. Um, and then also the other thing I'm going to blow your minds your, your, about is that uh, uh, canned whole chicken is still a real thing. It exists. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and I thought, oh, girl, I thought because, you know, you, you come from a military like family background. I didn't know if you knew about some of the more bizarre things that they would give like as supplies to have around. But whole chickens you can find in cans still. And I, um, I didn't know if you had known about this before. This was a staple well, of the military. <laughs> like here, I, I have I have seen a whole chicken in a can. I've never seen chicken wings in a can. But <laughs> when you get a whole chicken in a can, it essentially comes out uh, comes out as a gelatinous mound that <laughs> is uh, kind of um, <laughs> column like. And it jiggles. It's it's disgusting. But no, we just because we were in the military didn't mean that we were eating canned chicken. Come on. It's like, here's your Ashley ice cream and then your blob chicken. Here's the two things that you <laughs> Thank you for your service. <laughs> here's some gelatinous chicken. The, this is oh, this is man. a meal ready to eat, kinda, you know. So I didn't have a warm meal until I was fifteen. <laughs> you guys just heard uh 
the first day of me going vegetarian uh, <laughs> with go. the term gelatinous chicken. Uh, <laughs> oh, I found this blog so post about somebody trying to cook with it. And the only thing that bothered me about it was that they said the flavor was okay. And they said it had a strange mouthfeel. I'm like, it's chicken. Like once you get past the globiness of it, really how much different is it? But whatever. Like, I don't know. I just, I yeah, feel it, like- it can't be much worse than like McDonald's chicken nuggets. I, I mean, yeah. at the end of the day. I mean, that initially comes out as some sort of pink ooze that they just decided to mold into a McNugget. Yeah. As long as I can dip it in some Szechuan sauce, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, I do yeah, like one, it, one piece of trivia I found about this episode that uh, in order to make the world seem futuristic, the uh, price of the haircut was $5, which uh, in, in uh, modern money would be close to $40. Yeah, that's that's about how much I pay. So there you go. Fair enough. Let's <laughs> uh, put this key yeah, on your head that had a chicken in it and just shave around it. We'll be good. <laughs> that uh, the barber shop. It I had to look it up after because the setup of that set in there reminded me of the bar for Mister Dingle the Strong, which you were oh, on. Okay. But I don't think it was. Mm. But just with like that entrance where the door is placed and everything and the long interior of it, um, I couldn't find anything confirming or um, saying otherwise. So I, I didn't know if you guys picked up on that at all, if it could be. Well, with what the way, say, uh, union carpenters, they probably only yeah. had like five templates for sets. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's probably just a refurbished set. But um, and with Bronson pulling the knobs off of things, it could have been that bar. We don't know. Like that whole place was weak to begin with. You, know, you so. see, <laughs> what we don't know is that the back lot was completely immaculate. Then Bronson showed up a couple days early, and it was just wrecked. <laughs> it was the way I found it. That's it. You know, like <laughs> he moves on. So yeah, I, I don't know. I really like um, this was like considering. Like if you think about it, it's it's odd because season one, episode one was where is everybody, and it's one person walking through a town that had nobody in it, right? And then season two, episode one was the King Nine will not return, which was one guy out in the desert with a plane. And it's like, and then you have this one, which two people and, you know, it, for all its purposes, it's an abandoned area. And they're all, they all have kind of similar DNA. And it's interesting that each of the seasons have kind of started that way with more of an isolation to them. And I don't think that was on purpose, but it's easy to see that. And I, and yeah. I, like, I like that kind of soft intro to the season where you have more of a personal story before you get to the more fantastic yeah, and it's it's a ballsy decision for each season too. Like, uh, especially having one with almost no dialogue. <laughs> I I just uh, it's kind of mind blowing that they even decided to go with this episode for uh, the first one in season three. But I'm glad they did because I'm I'm looking forward to what's coming next in this season. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> it's, okay, very good. Yeah. Sorry, I thought I cut out there. <laughs> no, no, you're good. It just it was like for an episode with no dialogue, we're just going to let a little bit of silence go there. It was fine. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't know if you guys have any more thoughts about the episode improper, or should we just get to the twist? I just put a question mark on that because I don't know. <laughs> I'm good to move on. Yeah, well, let's do the twist. I'll throw my uh, final thoughts in there. If the twist is that they would find common ground, that that isn't surprising to me. So I gave that a two. But again, that doesn't rate the episode because the the episode itself, I enjoyed a great deal. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I mean, applied to this uh, twist format, this episode isn't one of the big ones. But uh, 
just in terms of pure episode quality, it certainly ranks up there amongst some of the best episodes of The Twilight Zone. There is just something about this, whether it be the stark desiccation of the the sets, the mostly mute performances on behalf of Montgomery and Bronson, and just how it all kind of comes together with some incredibly constructed shots. This episode has a power to it. And while the message in it might be a little preachy to some people's ears, I don't think it ever kind of uh, goes completely over into that. It feels heartfelt, which is not something that you typically find in a lot of Bronson properties. But this is one that I've pointed out to people whenever there's some people that say, oh, you know, Bronson can't act. It's like, go back and watch this. There's some awkwardness there because let's be fair, it's Bronson. (laughs) But it does stand out as one of his more nuanced and somewhat more engaging performances. Yeah, and especially looking at what he was doing before this. Um, I mean, people that were watching this episode had seen him in so many Westerns just playing just such a, a tough guy, you know, like and such a brute in so many of them um, that when he pops on screen and ends up being like a nice guy calling for peace and everything, it had to have been kind of jarring to see him do that. And uh, I I'm, I don't know. It, again, like. We always talk about this twist rating not really fitting with a lot of episodes. And uh, like I said, we've gotten some feedback from people complaining about what we've rated some episodes. Uh, I love this episode. Um, This is one that I would definitely go back to and rewatch. The the time just flies by while you're watching it. Uh, I'm going to give the twist a three. I'm going to go like right there in the middle because. Like I said, I was not expecting such a happy ending in this one. I was expecting something to go wrong um, just with how dark some of the imagery was in this and everything. I was expecting something to go wrong and just to have the twist be her smiling and them walking away together kind of caught me off guard. And for once uh, market for season three, episode one, I enjoyed a happy ending on the (laughs) twilight zone. (laughs) Well, oh, it took so two seasons. The one. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if they both would have died, um, this would have been a five-star ending. But <laughs> um, they just no, walk away, I, and all of a sudden we see a bomb drop. Yeah, the second like, bomb goes off. Damn you, Serling! We don't know. Right. We don't know if that chicken was actually good to eat or not. We don't know that. So. Oh man, that would have been a twist right there. <laughs> there you go. The pieces were poisoned. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think that's going to do it for uh, the first episode of season three. So two good episode, good, strong intro. That makes me excited for the, what's coming next. Um, so before we get to us, El Cora, how can people find you? Well, if you want to check out uh, my primary podcast, that is Talk Without Rhythm. It is a movie discussion podcast where every week I choose two movies that are somewhat tied together by a theme and sit down and talk about them. Uh, The most current episode that I put up came as a result of a request from one of my Patreons, and it ended up being a Sean Connery double feature with 1975's The Wind and the Lion and 1976's Robin and Marion, which if you haven't seen those movies, they come with my highest highest recommendation particularly the wind and the lion but also uh, robin and marion it's just an incredible incredible film and uh if you prefer the grappling arts and find yourself a fan of wrestling i also do a monthly podcast along with dynamo mars and johnny wolfenstein of trick-or-treat radio along with uh, jake 
from the Cult of Muscle and our buddy Coop. It's called the Five Hossman Wrestling Podcast. Basically, we get together once a month and talk for about five plus hours about all the wrestling in the world that's not the WWE most of the time. And uh, we're going to be recording a new episode this upcoming Sunday discussing New Japan Pro Wrestling's uh, Best of Super Juniors Tournament and their big show, Dominion, which uh, is set to have a really, really interesting card. So if you are a fan of wrestling and don't mind listening to a lot of hours <laughs> of it, uh, check out the Five Hossman Wrestling Podcast. That can be found at thefivehossman.buzzsprout.com. Yeah, and both those shows come with my highest recommendations. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. You are the standard for uh, podcasting, and uh, so happy to have you on the show again. It's, it's always a blast. Well, while I might push against the whole standard of podcasting <laughs> thing, it is always an absolute <laughs> blast to come on the show and talk to you guys about Twilight Zone, because I listen every week, I follow along with you every week, so any opportunity I can come on to talk some episodes, I'm always down. Nice. And I'm happy we could have you on for Bronson. This is no change right. of pace from uh, Burgess Meredith. So <laughs> That's just going to be a thing. Who, who are you guys? Burgess and Bronson. Nice. <laughs> I will combine them together to make Bronson Meredith. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. All right. And Kevin, how can people find us? Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Strange Highways Podcast. Join the conversation on there. Um, still trying to think of something fun to do with the Instagram I almost watched uh, a movie called uh, uh, Final Countdown over the weekend, and I was going to do a little video review of it, but uh, I ended up watching G.I. Joe Retaliation, so I figured nobody wanted to hear about that. (laughs) (laughs) But let me know what you want to see on the Instagram. Um, I'm still trying to think of something fun to do on there. Uh, You can email us at strangehighwayspodcast at gmail.com if you want to leave us voicemails or emails on there. And then we are available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Satchel, Podbean, pretty much anywhere you can find uh, podcasts, we are there. And it would really help us out, especially on iTunes, if you would throw us a five-star review on there and uh, get the show out to a few more people. Perfect. So next episode is called The Arrival. It has Charlie Sheen. It deals with aliens. Not really. Um, So... (laughs) uh, I got really confused for a second there. Yeah, I was just like, wait, what? Oh, I see what he did there. It does... Yeah. I'm going to mess up this so bad because there's a lot of words. So I'm going to just it read it. It does have uh, Kurt Russell's dad in it. Though, it does so. have Mr. Bing Russell. Yes. Yeah. Bing. Uh, Bing Russell. <laughs> uh, so, all right, here we go. Uh, literature is studded with stories of ghost ships and skeleton galleons. And next week on the Twilight Zone, we take the old tale of the Flying Dutchman and give it a coat of fresh paint. This time, the haunted ship is an aircraft. It lands at a typical busy airport and rolls up to the ramp, and it's at this point that you find yourselves on a passenger manifest of a flight that leads only to the Twilight Zone. It's called The Arrival. I did much better than I was expecting to. Season three, way to go. There well we go. done. Yeah. yeah. Words. Yeah, I'm sold. It sounds like them. he uh it sounds like Serling got his brother back in for this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh so yeah, next week the arrival. Um and that's gonna do it for for this week for two. Uh again, Al Gore, thank you for coming on. It was a lot of fun. And uh yeah, I this is a really wonderful way to start the season off. Always a pleasure. Yep. So it's stay away from that canned chicken, everybody. This is <laughs> no good. <laughs>